1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Susan Furukawa from Beloit College. Her new book, The Afterlife of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, Historical Fiction and Popular Culture in Japan, was recently published by Harvard University Press. This book explores how and why the famous Japanese warlord Toyotomi Hideyoshi has been so famous in popular culture in the 20th and 21st centuries. Analyzing various texts ranging from novels to his original biography from pre-modern Japan, Dr. Furukawa traces the changes in the interpretation of Hideyoshi and how it meets different needs of different times. So welcome, Dr. Furukawa. Thank you for joining us on uh, New Books in Japanese Studies today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about yourself first? What do you research
1: and teach about? Sure. Hi, my name is Susan Furukawa. Um, my kind of broadly defined my research is looking at the intersection of history and popular culture in Japan. Um, more specifically, because I'm a literature scholar, I look tend to look at historical fiction in particular, uh, historical novels and short stories. Um, I teach at Blake College, which is a small liberal arts college, so I get to teach a little bit of everything. I teach classes in film, in literature, and in language. Um, yeah.
0: Nice. Thank you. I love historical <laughs> fictions. Um, but uh, before we get to the book, I guess, can you briefly tell us about who's Toyotomi Hideyoshi? And uh, more importantly, why is he such an important samurai figure? He appears in a lot of um, documentaries, uh, historical, I guess, fictional documentaries as well.
1: So who was he? So he's sort of... Uh... So Hideyoshi is known as one of the three unifiers who helped unify Japan at the end of the sixteenth century. He's in the middle of Oda Nobunaga and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Um, He's famous because he's the one who ultimately uh, brought the provinces under kind of under one umbrella in fifteen ninety. He also put into place several policies that were then taken up by Tokugawa Ieyasu um, and really led to the foundation of what we now know of as modern Japan.
0: Awesome. And how did you become interested in Hideyoshi? And I guess your work really uh, focuses more on the modern day reception and interpretation of Hideyoshi. So what, um, what, what, what aspects of him and
1: his uh, interpretation attracted you? Interestingly, my... Uh, Kind of fascination with Japanese literature started with Natsume Soseki. Um, a friend in college read to me an excerpt of the novel Kokoro, and it was unlike anything I had ever read. And so I wanted to read this novel. And then once I read it, I was really fascinated by the ways that the socio-cultural context of the Meiji period was reflected in all these characters. And so that was something I hadn't seen as much in the in the literature. I was thinking about from America at the time. Um, And so that got me very interested in Japanese literature. Then I went off to live in Japan, I was on the JET program and every Sunday night these historical dramas would come on TV. And I was like, I was really perplexed by them because I didn't think the acting was all that good. And I just couldn't understand why everybody stopped what they were doing once a week to watch them. Ironically, that year, the, the Taiga drama was, called uh, Hideyoshi it was a takenata, takenata, Takenaka take, now I can't say his name takenaka Naoto. Uh, it was a tiger drama with him starring as Hideyoshi uh, and I, I I wasn't I was fascinated by the show itself but more so by the fact that so many people were learning their history from this television show and I was asking myself questions like you know what? What are they learning about what it means to be Japanese? What are they learning about the past? Why are so many people watching it? Are so many people watching it? Um, later, I went on to do research, and I did find out that yes, indeed, uh, Taiga drama have the one of the highest viewerships of any program on NHK in any given year. Uh, it only I don't of all the years I looked at, it only dropped down to number three lowest ever. And it tended to be that if it was a Taiga drama about the three unifiers, it was number one most viewed show in that year. Um, so I started becoming interested in this question of why are people consuming history the way they're consuming it in Japan? But I wasn't necessarily so interested in Hideyoshi at the time. I Went back to the US, went to grad school, and I was made to take a class that I didn't want to take because I thought that I wanted to do... Tokugawa or Meiji. But my advisor made me take a pre-modern Japanese history class. And so for the final project, I was like, what's the latest thing that happens in this period? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find something from the latest thing that happens, and that's the three unifiers. And so as I was looking into the three unifiers, and as I was thinking about, I would love to find some tale that keeps being told over and over again. Something along the lines of Chushin Gura, which, as you know, is in the Tokugawa period, the story of the Forty Seven Ronin. I was hoping to find something like that, but in the pre-modern period. And so I, you know, put I put Hideyoshi's name into WorldCat, and this this word Taikoki pops up, and it pops up over and over and over again in WorldCat. So I basically discovered Hideyoshi's biography um, when I had to take a class I didn't want to take and I was trying to figure out the easiest way to do a final project that I could find. I had no idea at the time that that would become the beginning of what turned into my book, but it did.
0: Um, I'm glad you... you, you, uh, I guess I'm glad your advisor pushed you to take that class because this book is really uh, one of the most um, uh, innovating book about Hideyoshi I had read about. Um, As you definitely know, a lot of... um, readings about Hideo, she approaches him from the medieval period, from the wars, um, and it's certainly interesting to see how, um, fast forward to the 20th and 21st century, he's used by different people for different purposes in all kinds of texts. So that's very interesting. And now that you mention this text taiko ki or the records of Taikō. So this is a very in, important textual source in your book. Can you tell us more about this text and how it has been used to portray
1: Hideyoshi? Sure. So <clears throat> excuse me. So Taikōki is um, a biography that was written by Oze Hōan. Uh, it came out in it came out about 25 years after Hideyoshi died. Oze Hōan was a Confucian scholar who had spent time kind of in Hideyoshi's world, so knew Hideyoshi quite well. Um, and he starts his his book with about Hideyoshi with a warning. And the warning is, when one yields to avarice, his descendants are ultimately brought to destruction. And if you know anything about Hideyoshi's history, uh, the rise and fall of the Toyotomi clan happened within a generation. Um, and so clearly from the beginning of this book that Ose writes, he has this goal of teaching us that if we are not righteous rulers, if we are not good leaders, if we succumb to avarice then we will we will fail. Um, but the interesting thing about that book is that it's really kind of following up on something that Hideyoshi was doing well before Ose wrote about him. Hideyoshi was constantly fictionalizing himself. He was a peasant. He was born um, with kind of no lineage, no last name. Um, and he continued to tell biographers stories about himself. Anybody who would listen, he would tell the story of his amazing birth. Um, and he would tell this, all these stories about his family. Uh, and, and by fictionalizing, I argue in the book that by fictionalizing himself so consistently, he really sets himself up to be fictionalized, um, from there on. Um, so, yeah, so Tai Taikoki comes out in the sixteen twenties and it really sets off a series of booms that continue to some degree even today um we it It has become a source material or a piece which is hard for me say. Uh, it has become source material for many many things that have been written about Hishi Hideyoshi since then but which is also which is also interesting to me because a lot of people will use Taikoki as a source. But Taikoki itself is, in some ways, a fictionalization of Hideyoshi with a specific purpose in mind.
0: Interesting. And just out of curiosity, was Taikoki written after the Tokugawa regime was established? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, so, um, curiously, um, well, I just wondered um, if it tried to glorify Hideyoshi in any way, or did it, tried to set up a contrast against um, Tokugawa Ieyasu because he was the almighty shogun at the time?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So in, in the early parts of Taikoki definitely glorify Hideyoshi and then it basically it's really telling the story of his rise and fall. But the whole problem of Hideyoshi in the Tokugawa period is also an interesting one because he remains a very popular subject of kind of writing and of art in the Tokugawa period and you see the various times that the shogunate is pushing back against this other times when the shogunate realizes that uh, there's not they don't really have the power to push against this popularity Um, and so there's this tenuous relationship between the image of Hideyoshi in the Tokugawa period and what's going on And, and yeah you can edit all that part.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, not, well, no, that's very fascinating. So, um, can you tell us about the structure of your book,
1: perhaps? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I start with an introduction, and then in the first main chapter of the book, I give readers an overview of to- Taikoki. Um, in that, I also include a history of Hideyoshi for those who don't know very much about Hideyoshi. Um, and then in the first chapter after that, then I look at Hideyoshi during World War II. Um, and following that chapter, I look at Hideyoshi as a post-war hero. And then in the next chapter, I look at uh, Hideyoshi and how women of ri- women writers of historical fiction write about him. And in the final body chapter, I'm looking at 21st century um 21st century encounters with Hideyoshi. And in particular, I'm thinking about how does uh, how does the conflict between Japan wanting to promote tourism as a way of helping the local economy, um, how does that work when the local economy and the tourism at hand has to do with Hideyoshi? Uh, because especially if the tourists are coming from East Asia, there can be some conflict involved or there can be some... Um, some, I mean, this is an understatement to be sure. There can be some hard feelings about uh, what has happened with Hideyoshi uh, in East Asia, and in particular, Hideyoshi, you know, launched two invasions of Korea in the 1590s, uh, and so we've got this historical figure who is the face of the first. Japanese aggression in East Asia, and in some ways you can map that on top of Japanese aggression during World War II, and failure to apologize or inac- inadequately apologize, depending on who you talk to or what how they think about things. Um, and then you have this figure Hideyoshi who kind of encompasses all of that. Uh, and so if you're a historical site about Hideyoshi, you know if you're a castle where Hideyoshi lived, or if you're a uh, temple. So I look at Kodaiji, which is where Onene went after Hideyoshi died. You know, how do you deal with that history and how do you do it in such a way that you can continue to operate and continue to, you know, attract tourists? So that's the last chapter.
0: Yeah. Okay. That That's something, um, I was very, um, I found very interesting when reading the book and I want to come back to it later, but, um, Perhaps we can turn to the the interpretation of Hideyoshi in the twentieth century and unpack that a little bit because um you have three chapters about this part. So, do you see the diff- do you see what kind of differences do you see in the ways that Hideyoshi was represented or portrayed in popular literature um,
1: in the twentieth century? So, I, I, I feel like I should start by saying there's so much out there about Hideyoshi, and I actually touched on this in the epic blog. There's so much out there about Hideyoshi that I couldn't possibly touch on all of it in the book. But uh, the, the, the thing that was most interesting to me in terms of Hideyoshi during World War II, uh, I expected to find Yoshikawa Eiji's taikoki shinshō taikōki is what it's called in Japanese, in English it's called taiko. It was serialized from 1939 until 1945. So I expected when I went to do a search, I went to the National Diet Library and I did a Yomiuri Shimbun newspaper search, I expected to find the serializations, but what I didn't expect to find was all sorts of other paratextual references to Hideyoshi, um, including there was an entire um, roundtable discussion and subsequent articles published about Hideyoshi um, that really gave me a, an interesting context for how Hideyoshi was viewed during World War II. And the way that he was viewed during World War II was as the kind of the ultimate altruistic Pan-Asianist, which again, if you think, okay, Hideyoshi invaded Korea and he, he himself didn't go, but he launched invasions of Korea Both invasions are are said to have failed, Um, and yet he is being portrayed during World War II as this very successful, very altruistic lover of East Asia. And you can, you know, if you understand the context of the time that this is when Japan is promoting the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, then it makes a lot of sense that this is how Hideyoshi might be portrayed, but it's historically not terribly accurate again, that's an understatement. There's nothing that we can look at in history now that says, yes, that is an accurate interpretation of Hideyoshi. But that image of Hideyoshi is used throughout the war um, to, promote, to promote loyalty, to promote um, perseverance, to promote um, hard work, frugality, all of these things that Hideyoshi is thought to be famous for. That's all used um, during the war um, and in Yoshikawa AGs novel about him. You see all sorts of stories where that's how he's being depicted. So I think I was not surprised to see the novel during World War II, but just all the other ways that Hideyoshi was mobilized um, really fascinated me. And then immediately after war, he becomes this business hero, which again, I was not expecting. Um, I encountered a couple of novels, uh, one of which is called Salaryman man Shusei Taikoki, or the Taikoki of a salaryman trying to rise up in the world. Um, and so there's this character named Hidekichi, who has the same uh, kanji characters in his name as Hideyoshi. But instead of trying to, you know, win battles, he's trying to sell, he's trying to get a job at Japan's leading company, which is uh, Tokyo Motors. And he's trying to sell the most cars. Uh, so you see all these famous anecdotes about Hideyoshi being mapped onto a, a guy selling cars uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, so I thought that was really fun and interesting and said a lot about the ways that people are trying to make a pivot away from a warrior past to this kind of business future. Um, But I was also really fascinated to find that there were all these essentially self-help business manuals that were popular at the time who used Hideyoshi as a role model. Um, And so things like Hideyoshi and Human Relationships, you too can be a good human relations manager like Hideyoshi. Um, And so you see a lot of these types of books coming out as well. And then in the 70s, what we see is Kind of in the late sixties and seventies, we start sees people starting to push back against this idea of Hideyoshi as a hero, or at least against this idea that we should kind of unquestionably accept that Hideyoshi was he heroic. Right. Um my my two favorite um works of fiction that I look look at in the book. One is by Tsuyastaka and it's called Yamasaki. And it's a short story about, you know, after after um, yeah, sorry, Akichimitsuhide at uh, the like, I uh, lost my words. After Akichimitsuhide betrays Oda Nobunaga and Oda Nobunaga dies, then Toyotomi Hideyoshi avenges. You know the story, right? He avenges Oda Nobunaga and Akichi Mitsuhide is defeated, and that that battle happens in Yamazaki, and so the the short story is about that battle but instead of it being this kind of typical work of historical fiction part it starts out looking very much like what you would think historical fiction story would look like and then partway through it just switches into this alternative reality Um, so partway through Hideyoshi picks up an electric razor and starts shaving himself and he turns on the TV and he calls he calls somebody on the phone and then so then the question of how did Hideyoshi move his forces so quickly to get to Yamasaki before everybody else well it's only because they were able to buy more bullet train tickets than everybody else Um, and so basically Tsuyastaka moves everything into the 1960s uh, that whole story into the 1960s and when you see Samurai cutting each other up on a bullet train. Suddenly, it seems much less heroic and much more barbaric. And so, I argue that you know she's doing that as a way of kind of pulling the reader's mind um, toward that reality. And then Nagai Michiko is another author, author that I really love, and she has a novel called *The Monarch, Monarch's Wife*: Hideyoshi's Wife Onene. Um, and in that novel, we see Onene. Basically, kind of grow to have her own voice and start to really criticize what Hideyoshi is doing. So that by the end of the novel, when Hideyoshi is telling one of these fabulous tales about himself to his biographer, not Ose, but another one of his biographers, she's like, I've never met that. I didn't know that your father was a chunagon. I've never met him before. And Hideyoshi's like, This is the one you've never met. And she said, yeah, I know. Wait a minute. I thought your, you know, I thought your mother was so and so, and your father was so and so, and then, then she realizes, oh, wait a minute, he is just completely making this up. And so, in uh, in the in that passage, Nagai writes that that uh, Onene couldn't believe that these two men could tell this story to one another, and both of them keep a straight face essentially. Um, and so. By the sixties and early seventies, we see this pushback against the deification of Hideyoshi, and um, this question of whether Hideyoshi is a hero or not at all.
0: That the, the, all, the, the, those three chapters were absolutely fun to read, and I guess to add one two questions um, to 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 what you just said. So the deification part about him, all these amazing traits that he, have, uh, uh, he had, he's supposed to have had um, as a successful businessman, as this hardworking person. Were they in the original historical biography of him in Taikoki or were they made up? And secondly, um, since your book um, looks at how these portrayals of him were used to meet um, different needs of the era, why, why was there such a resistance, um, against his destification from the second world war period in the 1960s and seventies, like you mentioned.
1: These are, so the first question is yes, that some of these stories were also in the original Taikoki, um, and are yes, essentially part of Hideyoshi lore, um. The second question you asked was, can you repeat the second question? Uh, yes, yeah. so
0: the how did <laughs> this uh, resistance against the defecation of hideyoshi from the Second World War period, what was the, um, I guess, historical or social context like for such resistance in the 1960s and 70s?
1: Okay, yeah, thank you. I, I get what you're asking now. Um, in, in particular, with the, the chapter where I talk about women writers, I argue that Um, that with the rise of feminist writers writing about a a wide range of things, um, you see women writing against the idea of good wife, wise mother. You see women writing against um, the various boxes that women typically get put into uh, when you're in a patriarchal society. And uh, I argue that historical fiction has not typically been a place that people look to see this happen, right? That typically people think of historical fiction as being the man's world. Um, and so don't necessarily think of historical p- fiction as the place where you see women writing against these kinds of ideas. Um, in fact, I've, I've been looking at some other, I've recently written another chapter about women's writers of historical fiction. And one of the things I write about there is that the famous author, Mishimiya Yukio, uh, basically argues that women shouldn't write about history because they don't have anything to say about history. Um, And another famous author, Oka Shohei, argues that the kinds of history that women write are about the bedroom and the kitchen and so why would anybody want to read that, right? And so I'm pushing back against that idea because I think that uh, the women writers that I look at, look at, Ariyoshi Sawako and Nagai Michiko, sure, they are writing about some of those things, but they're saying some pretty um, controversial things and they're and they're creating these controversial characters who are undermining this notion that women don't have a place in this kind of patriarchal world. Um, Ariyoshi Sawako's book that I look at is... Um, Izimono Okuni. I cannot okay. today. Yes, I can My English is, that's not even English, it's Japanese, but it's called the Kabuki Dancer uh, in English. And, you know, she is the lowest of the low in society. And yet, throughout the novel, she's very close to Hideyoshi. She keeps crossing paths with him or people in his world. Um, and as she does it, she criticizes him and them and ask questions like, why, why do men build castles? Because as soon as they lose, they burn them down. Um, and that makes no sense, right? Or um, things like that, right? Where she's being very critical of the way society works. And you wouldn't expect a woman in her position to have that kind of voice, but Aideyoshi Sawako gives her that voice.
0: That's amazing. I, I, I look forward to seeing Mishima Yukio getting a heart attack reading all these. Um, <laughs> sadly we won't ever see that. But moving on to the 21st century. Sure. Um, so how would you characterize the 21st century interpretation interpretation of him? Um, so um, while well, Hideyoshi appears in so many more forms of popular culture and in pop, so many more genres of popular culture I th- in anime and games as well um and how so so i guess what are some of the characterizations in the 21st century interpretation of him and uh how do you see that connect to our um contemporary social or political context i shouldn't say political I, yeah but social <laughs> context okay
1: uh, yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, I didn't spend as much time looking at texts from the 21st century because I really wanted to focus only on the 20th century. Um, but the more I worked on this book, the more I realized I couldn't just end without talking about the problem of Hideyoshi in the 21st century because it's it's a glaring issue, right? And so... You know, as I said, then I, I decided the way I decided to, to handle that is to look at these two historical sites where Hideyoshi is still very, very visible. Um, one of them being Kodaiji in Kyoto and the other one being Saga Nagoya-jo, which is the castle from where which he launched his invasions of Korea in the 1590s. Um, And I chose both of those sites because they continue to be pretty attractive to to tourists. um, And they continue to have to tell a story about Hideyoshi. They can't not tell a story about Hideyoshi. um, But also because the way they tell these stories is very fascinating. Um, I've been going to Kodaiji, well, before the pandemic, I was going to Kodaiji almost every year for about 10 years um, as part of what I do with students. And at some point... (laughs) maybe around 2014, suddenly I see that they've got these really cute manga characters, manga-esque characters. Um, and it's not just the character of Onene, which is who I expected to see there, right? Because Onene moved there to live after Hideyoshi died. Um, and the story before that, right, before the around circa t- 2014 was this focus on how Onene Onene continued to have power for many years after Hideyoshi's death when it was a time when women often didn't have such power. Um, And so that was always the story that they told before 2014. But suddenly in 2014 or thereabouts I go and there in front of my eyes is Hideyoshi. And not only that, but there's a sign that says, if you rub the heads of these statues, you can have a long and happy relationship like Onene and Hideyoshi. And I about passed out on the spot because that's just not what I expected to find. Um, you know, a couple of years later, I go back and now they've got a Yurukara of Hideyoshi and Onene that they bring out at popular times of the like during festivals and things like that. Um, and more recently, now there's a huge focus on the romantic potential of Kodaiji because of the romantic story that's told there about. Onene and Hideyoshi. And so in the course of my research, I asked about this. <laughs> I said, explain this to me. You know, Hideyoshi was not known to be terribly monogamous. Not that people at that time were. Um, but, you know, they did have a congenial... Continue- I mean, they had a good relationship, but I'm not sure that using them as these kind of romantic... this paragons of roman- romance is really the way to go. Uh, And so one of the docents explained to me that, you know, that uh, they supported each other. And she used this word shuse again, right? As as they were both trying to make their way in the world, they continued to understand and support each other. Uh, And she went on to say that uh, young people today would benefit from learning from the example of Hideyoshi and Onene because not everyone, uh, you know, not everyone today is as giving as they were to each other. Uh, and I thought that was a very fascinating and very different than what I expected story. Um, but as I, you know, as I did this analysis, it it really occurred to me that this is a way to make Hideyoshi palatable. Um, and it's a way to sell. I mean, I also spoke with the, with the head of the, of the temple and he told me, yes, it's also a way to, to sell more tickets and get more people to come in the door. Uh, yeah, so that's Kodaiji. And then the other place, the first time I went was probably in the 1990s. Uh, again, this is Saga Nagoya Castle Museum uh, and ruins. And I talked with one of the um, archaeologists who was excavating the site. And I asked him, you know, are you guys excavating the castle? And he said, at least once a week, someone comes and tells me that this is history best left buried. Um, and I thought that was a really fascinating quote that I continue to think about. Um, and as, if you go to that museum, you just, you notice that there's a pretty noticeable lack of Hideyoshi in the museum. Um, it's very much the story of the relationship between Japan and Korea. There's, there's a corner that's about those wars. Um, but even in that corner, You know, Hideyoshi is just a small part of a larger story that they're telling. Uh, And and then beyond that, they have decided not to rebuild that castle. Uh, And and instead, they have created this kind of virtual tour of it. And so I argue that in this place where you would expect to see him, you don't see him. In this place, you don't expect to see him. You do see him. And both of these highlight the kind of complicated position that uh, historical sites find themselves in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow, and so does that? So the the I guess the um, absence of Hideyoshi in his own castle, in the in the ruins of his own castle, is that connected with um, Japan's
1: relationship with Korea now? That's what I, I mean. Again, I, I'm in some ways I'm I'm speculating, but that's what my argument is: is that it it uh, has to do with the complicated relationship that that site has with Korea. And it's interesting though, because they have worked really hard to build, um, they have worked really hard to build a museum and exhibits that are accessible to guests from Korea. And they actually have started bringing, um, Korean tourist groups to that museum in particular. Um, and so I think that's an, uh, it's a uh, concerted effort. The museum is making, um, to do that, which then again means that you have to kind of downplay Hideyoshi. Indeed,
0: right. And now I want to move on to the broader um, implications of your book because uh, So I'm, I'm, I, I began my uh, academic uh, studies as a literature person and now turned to history. So I'm very much interested in the portrayal of historical figures in both um, a, a good, academic works and scholarly works versus in literary works, uh, especially in fiction. So when portraying historical figures in fiction, historical fiction, I guess, or academic works, what do you think are some issues that we should be careful with regarding um, the use of historical materials, their biography, whether or not um, they're fabricated or reinterpreted um, the the so-called historical truth, right? Um, <laughs> that's, I know that's a super difficult question, but I really no, wanted to no. hear your thoughts I mean, on it.
1: <laughs> I um, As I was doing this research, as I continue to think about these questions, I, I often think about Hayden White's notion of implotment, right, and that all history is somehow implotted, and that all narrative is history, and all history is narrative. Um, that, again, as a literature person, that's that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but I continued to do a lot of reading with uh, what Japanese scholars of historical fiction were writing about, and what Japanese authors of historical fiction were writing. Uh, and there's a lot of ink that has been spilled on this question of where is the line between fact and fabrication. Um, and I don't know, you know, if you think about Morty Ogai, he essentially got to the point where he didn't feel like he could cross that line at all. So he was basically writing things that he found in historical sources, almost word for word, um, or just not embellishing much at all. Um, And so I think that if you, if you read all that, and you think about that, all that the answer is, it's complicated, right? There is no, there is no good answer to this question. Um, I think if we are wanting to be good, good portrayers of historical figures, we have to approach that task with caution, uh, and with a really clear understanding of what our own biases are. Uh, and not only that we have our own biases, but that we're influenced by our own social cultural context, uh, that we understand things in a certain way that they might not be understood in the future or they weren't understood in the past. Uh, and so I think, yeah, that's my answer to that question is, is that there, there's not an easy answer to that question. And, um, But we need to hear more voices, right? Which is why I'm really fascinated with the work that women writers of historical fiction are writing and, and moving in that direction in terms of for my next book. I think that's what I'll be focusing on because uh, the voices that they offer themselves are really fascinating and they're also listening to voices that haven't necessarily been heard and they're portraying those voices uh, that haven't necessarily been portrayed. And I'm really fascinated in finding out more about their work
0: thank you for saying that i i I too look forward to reading more of uh female writers voices well uh thank you for your time in joining us on the channel i really enjoyed I, i enjoyed your book and i really enjoyed
1: our conversation yes thank you for having me it was nice talking with you
0: Thank you. And for our listeners who are interested in the changing representation of the legendary Toyotomi Hideyoshi, make sure to check out The Afterlife of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, Historical Fiction and Popular Culture in Japan by Dr. Susan Furukawa. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.